0: Hey guys, I'm Avni, and I'm Diva, and I cannot take this episode seriously. Me neither, because we're talking about the dark web today. Which, I mean, you'd think would be a little bit grim, because, you know, all the shady and illegal stuff happens there, like murders, drug crime things, super specific there, Uh, assassinations, but then also book clubs and scavenger hunts. And chess
1: clubs, don't forget about those.
0: Do you see why I can't take this seriously anymore, like...
1: (laughs) I think a lot of people's first assumption about the dark web is that it's all bad. The only thing happening on there are, like, serial killers trying to find victims or people ordering hitmen, but that's honestly not true at all.
0: I mean, again, there's book clubs and scavenger hunts there. So, like, have you heard of Cicada 501?
1: I've heard about it, but I don't really know much about it.
0: Okay, so like a couple years ago, my friends and I, different friend group, by the way, we were like, hey, let's be stupid and search up this one video that explains what it is. And I was really spooked by it. But basically, um, this one anonymous group, I believe, they put up like these encrypted messages. I'm not sure using what, maybe blockchain, I don't know. But basically, they used, like, they put up a bunch of messages and then sent people around the world to, like, find a bunch of stuff. And I don't know what the reward is. It's like, the message led to a book, the book led to a place, the place led to another book, and then the book led to another message thing. It's like a bunch of Da Vinci code, but, like, actually kind of cool.
1: Wow, this sounds like Ready Player One, but in real life.
0: Right? And, um... It's never been finished. I think there are still people trying to like decode the last book that they put out or something like that. Um, But some of these people were given like access to a secret society. Illuminati much? I don't know. A little bit. You think? But see, this also happens
1: on the dark web.
0: And it's not shady in the slightest, of course.
1: (laughs) Definitely not.
0: Okay, so real quick, how does one get onto the dark web? Um, asking for a friend, by the way, totally not for me.
1: (laughs) So it starts by like what you consider the dark web to be. So the layer is split up into three different layers. The first one is the surface web, which is what we all use, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of that is there. But the thing is that only makes up between four and 10% of the internet. And the rest is what we call the deep web. So the deep web isn't all just, you know, the scary stuff that we hear about, because again, it's more than 90% of the internet. The surface part of the deep web is just stuff that people can't get into normally, like stuff that's encrypted. So if you're trying to log into a bank's interface that needs a password, that's still considered the deep web. But normally when we think about the dark web, you can't access that through like Safari. The most common thing that you would use is called Tor or the Onion Router. Have you heard about that?
0: I'm just going to say, no, okay. You've just talked about this a lot um, to the extent where that's probably why I can't take this episode seriously anymore. Um, (laughs) Okay, the fact that there are layers to the the internet, I was thinking of like the Shrek analogy with the onions and it's called the Onion Router apparently, so I don't know where to go from that
1: you really, there really is nowhere to go besides Shrek.
0: I also love the fact that, I mean, I can see this because you're on FaceTime, our audience obviously can't, but, like, the fact that you're trying to keep a straight face and continue with the episode, (laughs) like, props to you for doing that, I wouldn't be able to. Anyway, continue.
1: So, Tor, um, is, like, affiliated with Firefox, so it's a you know, legit browser, you can get it pretty easily. There's no sketchy stuff involved with that. So if you wanted to, you can get onto the dark web
0: surprisingly easily. Just a disclaimer, positionality media is not responsible for anything that occurs on the dark web. So enter at your own discretion if you would like. We are not responsible for that. We are not encouraging you to go onto the dark web, but it would be kind of cool to go there. Again, we're not encouraging anything.
1: <laughs>
0: so don't sue
1: us, plus. Again, please don't go onto the dark web. There is a lot of sketchy stuff that happens. But honestly, if you did, you'd probably just be confused. The way that the dark web works is that unlike normal web browsers that, you know, would register someone's IP address immediately when they're using it, Tor, you know, the onion router, (laughs) bounces requests to enter a site via several computers throughout the world, which encrypts and decrypts identification so nobody knows, like, what your IP address is so that's good for protecting anonymity but if you're going on to tour you probably won't be able to find stuff very easily because there's not just google where you can search up sites you can't just go on and search up like psychedelic mushrooms (laughs) they won't just pop up
0: (laughs) I'm pretty sure you can't just search up shady assassins and find like yelp for assassins
1: Yeah, that's not how it works.
0: (laughs) I wonder why. Okay, so how was this, I guess, how'd this come to fruition in the first place?
1: So darknet infrastructure was made around in the 1970s, so at the same time as the creation of the internet itself. But originally, you needed darknet software to utilize it, which most people didn't have. But in the early 2000s, the U.S. Naval Research Lab created one of the first and most popular darknet softwares, which is Tor, which has over 80,000 websites on it, actually.
0: Dang, that's pretty awesome. So originally it was just created
1: to provide U.S. Navy intelligence offer- officers the ability to use the internet without being recognized or traced because it'll bounce your IP address so nobody really knows where you're you know, using the, the dark web from. So originally it was just used for government use. That's, like, why Tor was created.
0: So Tor was essentially created by the government, but obviously it's now translated into a bunch of things where I'm assuming, like, because of all of the shady, bad things that happen on the dark web, um, specifically, like, through a lot of sites on Tor, um, they're kind of trying to shut it down, aren't they? Yes, but it's not
1: going to be as, like helpful as people might think it is. Because people do use the dark web for good reasons. I mean, essentially, the reason anybody would use the dark web is just to protect their identity, which sometimes people are forced to do. But a lot of the people who do use Tor to become anonymous online usually have ill intentions, which is why there's so much shady stuff on the dark web.
0: Right. So obviously we know about most of this shady or illegal activities, such as drugs, weapons, illegal identification, uh, child pornography, etc., cetera, et cetera, What do we not know? Like, is there any part of any of, like, the shady stuff or, like, anything that is notable that we should be aware of when looking at the dark web? The dark web is famous for dark markets,
1: which usually sell drugs. You can sometimes get hitmen on there, weapons, and other sort of contraband. One of the most famous of these is called the Silk Road. Have you heard about that?
0: Yeah, again, you told me so much about this.
1: (laughs) So the Silk Road was something that became really popular in 2013, but it actually started in 2011 with this guy named Ross William Albright. So this guy, he was a libertarian and an anarchist, So he thought that, you know, getting drugs was someone's individual choice. So he dreamed of an online market where people would be able to buy or sell narcotics and other illegal items without governmental interference. Because obviously, as a libertarian, that's what he despised the most.
0: And as an anarchist as well.
1: Exactly. So he sought out to do this. He created a website on the dark web called The Silk Road, under a username called Dread Pirate Roberts. <laughs> okay. Originally, when he created this, he didn't really expect it to go anywhere. He wasn't doing much with his life, anyways. He just wanted to try it out, see what happened. I mean, he started the website with only one item to buy um, psychedelic mushrooms, <laughs> which he grew himself, actually.
0: The fact that he started one of the most influential sites on the dark web with the same mentality that we started this podcast.
1: (laughs) Basically, he didn't really have any, you know, huge ideas or dreams in mind. He just wanted to do it because why not?
0: Okay, a little bit different from our podcast. Somehow we're more ambitious with this than he was with, like, illegal (laughs) drug trafficking. But hey, I mean, you do you, man. Yeah, basically. So the
1: Silk Road actually started becoming very popular very quickly and the reason is he it was like a pretty new idea at the time you know dark markets because his model worked really well obviously when you go into the dark web you're anonymous because the way that tor works is that you can't see other people's ip addresses and the way that he you know did all these transfers of money so people can purchase things was through bitcoin which i'm guessing you've heard of <laughs>
0: Really? No, tell me more. Yeah, I've heard of it. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Part of the reason we know so much about Bitcoin and we hear about it a lot is actually the Silk Road. I mean, when the Silk Road became popular, it, like, Bitcoins use soared in popularity just because so many people were using it on the dark web. The way that Bitcoin works is that, like, if you have a Bitcoin address, it doesn't require a bank account, ID, social security number, or even a name, and they're free to open and maintain.
0: Yo, wait, so how does Bitcoin actually have any value? Because it seems like it's pretty, um, I guess, replaceable? Not necessarily replaceable, but like, it's not secure in the slightest.
1: Which is why it's perfect for the dark web. There's no way to track Bitcoin to someone. Okay, true. Bitcoin's blockchain It provides a way to verify that payments have been received or sent, but by using Bitcoin, the only identifying information for, let's say, a narcotics transaction, like you would on the dark web, would be the address of the the receiver, which could be easily solved by using an anonymous P.O. box. So essentially, on the dark web, you could buy anything and it wouldn't be traced to you.
0: Yo, that's kind of... I, wanna, I don't want to say awesome because I don't condone <laughs> illegal activity. But hey, I, I mean, mean... Please don't become the next Ross <laughs> Alright, <laughs> This dude was a failure. There's no way I want to be like him.
1: <laughs> well, he wasn't completely a failure. I mean, he created a very successful dark market where users could illegally buy all kinds of drugs like LSD, mushrooms, cocaine, guns, all of that without being identified by the government. But around 2013, when the Silk Road neared its millionth account, FBI began cracking down on their investigation of the site.
0: Okay, wait, hold up. Don't they have a task force specifically for the Silk Road? Yeah,
1: because, you know, Silk Road is becoming so popular and is becoming such a problem because obviously people were buying illegal contraband on there. They created an, The FBI created an entire task force just to deal with it. I mean, one of the guys who is actually... Vital in you know stopping this was Special Agent Karl Mark Force, the Fourth. Great name, by the way.
0: I know it sounds like something out of Star Wars. Yeah, (laughs) the Fourth really adds to it. Truly. Okay, wait. Just just before we move on with the story, to put that into perspective, we have a special task force for COVID, (laughs) and one task force specifically for this one website. (laughs)
1: This guy, which nobody knew anything about, he was not relevant in the slightest, (laughs) but he just happened to run the most popular dark market that we knew of at the time. So (laughs) this special agent force, when he joins the task force, he's assigned with, you know, becoming a user on the dark market and trying to become close to, you know, the creator who goes by Dread Pirate Roberts or DPR. So he creates an entire, you know, persona that he goes by and he starts, you know, becoming active on the Silk Road to the point that he interacts with DPR more often so that he becomes one of the most trusted people DPR knows on the dark web.
0: Okay, I mean, just imagine if, like, your one friend stabs you in the back
1: julius caesar and brutus
0: (laughs) okay true 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 okay but like wow this this man is such a manipulative person
1: yep so to put that into perspective ross albright he trusted the most out of everyone two people curtis green who actually worked for him to you know run the website and Special Agent Force. Oh, no. Out of his two most trusted people, one of them just happened to be an FBI agent. And the other. So Curtis Green was the other person who, you know, helped run the website. Because as it became more popular, Albright needed Mm -hmm. help, obviously. This man, (laughs) Curtis Green, one day, you know, he is obviously uses drugs a lot really no wonder <laughs> otherwise he wouldn't be on the dark mark on silk road so one day he's you know whatever just doing <laughs> nothing in his home <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't the most interesting person either but he gets a package of cocaine which isn't unusual for him again he works right. on the silk road of course he opens it up <laughs> You know, a plume of cocaine goes into his face, and then his door is knocked
0: down by a SWAT team. (laughs) Okay. Him trying to open up cocaine is like a child trying to open up a bag of flour. Like, was was this man trying to bake or something? What's going on over here?
1: (laughs) He opens it up, you know, a SWAT team breaks down his door. His two chihuahuas are running around him freaking out, (laughs) and he's arrested.
0: Okay, real quick, I know this is completely irrelevant, but weren't you telling me that the article that you found this on, like, said specifically that he was drinking, like, 64 ounces of Coke, the drink, and, like, eating a, <laughs> eating a powdered donut?
1: And of course, he just happens to get arrested while buying cocaine and then white powder in his face.
0: <laughs> Could that not be more perfect? I just, I love this so much. (laughs) This story is like, (laughs) like screw fairy tales. You know, this is the story y'all need to be telling your kids.
1: Exactly. You know about this person who decided to create a place where you could buy illegal drugs.
0: This is why you don't do bad decisions, guys. Don't do bad, (laughs) (laughs) don't make bad decisions.
1: I mean, just try not to end up like Curtis Green. He gets arrested and obviously he knows he's going to be in jail for a long time. But the FBI offers him a way to reduce the sentence if they help him get, you know, Ross Albright. So, on Albright's end, he finds out that Curtis Green has been arrested. He doesn't want Green compromising his website or compromising his, ad- his identity. Luckily, before that, when he had hired Curtis Green, he'd made him send identification, you know, his ID, his passport. Which is like the ultimate form of trust on the dark web. Okay. Essentially, Albright could do anything to Curtis Green if he ever
0: betrayed him. Okay. Yeah.
1: The issue with that is when Albright goes, you know, to try to make sure that Green's not going to help the FBI, the person he turns to to help him with that is Special Agent (laughs) Force. (laughs)
0: Hey, I'm gonna make sure that you don't go to the FBI. So, guess what? I'm gonna do go to the FBI. Cause you know, that's <laughs> that's logic 101 right there. Like, yeah. So, you know, he contacts Force,
1: asking him to not kill him, but you know, just beat him up, <laughs> force him into compliance, which is something Albright was pretty strong on not doing on the dark web. Okay. But obviously, in the scenario, he compromised some of his morals and it backfired. So he contacts Force, and Force is like, Yeah, I can do that for you, easy. But Force goes to Curtis Green, who's already agreed to help, and he just fakes it. He sends Albright a photo of Green, like, bloodied up, but it's completely fake because he's with the FBI.
0: Yeah, and when you're with the FBI, you can do stuff like that. Eventually,
1: Albright orders um, Force to kill Green. Again, they fake it. It's totally fine. So Albright thinks that he's completely safe. Okay. The one person who could have compromised his identity is now supposedly dead. But he knows that, you know, he could be in danger of the, of the government. If they found um, Green, they could find him. So he goes dark. He doesn't access the Silk Road, go on tour whatsoever
0: for the next couple weeks. Okay. I mean, that sounds smart. You know, he leaves
1: his apartment. He tries to stay late. Okay, yeah,
0: I was going to say, like, I'm just going to go ahead and assume that because you're this businessman on the dark web, because obviously, like, the Silk Road is still a market or a business that you need to monitor. He trusted someone to take care of that, right? And if Curtis Green and Special Agent Force, the fourth, are the only two people he trusts, and Green is dead, according to him, that would mean that the only other person he trusted would be Force. Exactly.
1: So Force reaches out trying to contact Albright. I mean, Albright knows that he has to go back onto the Silk Road. You know, it's his business. It's his life's work, essentially. He has to check on it. He doesn't use his personal computer because he knows that could be, you know, being tracked. Instead, he does obviously the smartest move, And uses a public library (laughs) computer. (laughs) This man is in a library where children are reading, accessing the most popular dark market
0: on the dark web. Could you imagine, though, if there was like a child right next to him, right? Just playing on, like playing with one of those Dora like computer games, like learn to read Dora things. And then this man is accessing a market for drugs right next to him.
1: Well, it would probably be bad for the kid because the FBI immediately finds him.
0: This man... <laughs> this man <laughs> is the smartest idiot I've ever heard of. Yep. With
1: the help of Special Agent Force, they track him down to this library computer and they arrest him. He was arrested for life without parole for money laundering, drug trafficking, hacking, and fraud. And they obviously shut down Silk Road.
0: And then everyone lived happily ever after. The end. The FBI wishes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The arrest of Ross Albright actually resulted in an increase in drug trade. As more people were made aware of these online marketplaces. In 2013, you know, his arrest and the Silk Road was a huge story. With them shutting down the Silk Road, rather than it, you know, decreasing the purchase of illegal drugs on the dark web, it actually increased it. Because a lot of other marketplaces like the Silk Road began appearing on the dark web. Stuff like Silk Road 2.0, <laughs> super, original, super creative by the way. <laughs> Project Black Flag, Black Market Reloaded, Alpha Bay, Dream Agora, so many more. And that list is only of the stuff
0: that we know. So I mean, the question is, of course, what do we not know? Exactly.
1: The thing is, what is good is that though the arrest of Albright seems to encourage the creation of new dark markets, most of these lack the security and reliability of the dark road. So a lot of them, you know, were able to be shut down pretty quickly. But the issue with that is obviously Ross Albright tried to stick to his morals a little bit at least. Not a lot, but...
0: Whatever's left of them.
1: Yeah. He did try to create a kind of safe community. He didn't really scam his users. He tried to, you know, promise anonymity. But most of these markets didn't do the same. They've been known to scam users out of their money. Um, A lot of them will open for a short while and then disappear without returning any of the users' bitcoins. So they don't usually last as long and they hurt more people.
0: I mean, yeah, I mean, it makes sense considering, like, If Ross Albright was caught by abiding to his morals and, like, being as safe as possible, clearly, like, that didn't work out for him because, you know, he's kind of in prison. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Yeah. So that obviously didn't work out. So it would make sense that these people would retort to, like, other practices that are probably more shady in order to keep them out of jail.
1: And with the Silk Road, while it focused mainly on just selling illegal drugs, which are obviously bad, a lot of worse stuff stuff happens on the dark web. I mean, it's used by extremists and terrorist groups to communicate with one another and spread propaganda, and the dark web is also known for transplant commercialism. Do you know what that is? I
0: think I've heard a little bit. um, I know I was looking at the shady side of healthcare a little bit. I don't know why. Um, This is just a thing that was (laughs) happening. Isn't it, um, I guess, the illegal trafficking of human organs?
1: Yeah. So it's recognized as a serious crime in most countries, though not Iran. So it happens a lot there. This is essentially organ trafficking. When this happens, a lot of victims may be held against their will, forced to undergo medical tasks, and operated on without consent to remove organs. The worst part is, I mean, the dark web is well-suited for this because it relies on anonymity, meaning it's very difficult for government officials to track it.
0: Right, and that means a lot more people are obviously dying. Um, for obvious reasons, this is super unethical.
1: Exactly. But again, government officials can't do a lot about it because
0: it's just so difficult to track people on the dark web. So, okay, I know we've talked a lot about all this negative stuff, this malicious stuff that occurs on the dark web. Is there anything that's good? Besides, you know, like, the book clubs? Surprisingly, it's not as bad as most people think.
1: Over half of all domains on the dark web are completely legal, as we mentioned before, there's book clubs and there's chess clubs on there. There's even a dark web version of Facebook called Blackbook.
0: I mean, hey, if you ever just want to, like, tell Zuckerberg to leave or, like, you know, <laughs> um, because he is a mega capitalist who's trying to make voodoo dolls of us. Well, again, like Blackbook,
1: <laughs> interesting website, obviously legal. But again, most people assume the dark web is bad, but TOR receives 60% of its backing from the U.S. State Department and the Department of Defense because it acts as a secure network for both government agencies and political dissidents fighting oppressive regimes. There they can, you know, remain anonymous, which is often imperative for them. So again, the dark web is more important than people think. Right.
0: I think I heard TOR being one of, like, the main websites that a lot of whistleblowers use in order to report some of the shady stuff that happens yeah
1: um the new york times and the guardian actually host dark web drop sites to upload tips from whistleblowers so that they can feel anonymous when they're doing that but they can still give important information to these news outlets the dark web has empowered activists to spread new information Dissidents and activists used TOR to share information about remedies for tear gas, to organize protests, and to escape censorship. The trend continued even during the Syrian Revolution, and it was used during Arab Spring, which, again, encouraged whistleblowers to release information and, you know, fight for their freedom.
0: Which is honestly pretty awesome. Like, if we didn't have the anonymity that the dark web granted us, we probably wouldn't be able to do a lot of things.
1: Yeah, well, the average person just sees the dark web for it's bad. It helps a lot of other people. It helps domestic violence victims to hide online. And again, for individuals living under oppressive regimes that block large parts of the internet or punish political dissent, the dark web is a lifeline that provides
0: access to information and protection from persecution. I think... um... We talked about this a little bit last episode with Femicide. Go check it out if you haven't already, by the way. Um, Random (laughs) self-promo in these episodes. But it's almost like we talked about the importance of censorship in kind of trying to stunt the women's rights movement. And I'm just thinking, like, if these people had access to the dark web or services that provide the similar anonymity of the dark web, maybe that movement could go further because, of course, it helps domestic uh, violence victims, which would, of course, help many women in Turkey. It would also aid in just, like, helping the movement go further than what we see.
1: I mean, there's a reason that, you know, Albright, as a libertarian, valued the dark web so much. It provides people with freedom to, you know, remain anonymous and do things that the government might not allow them to do, which aren't always bad.
0: So... I was reading this one book by Edward Snowden, who, for those of you that don't know, he was a former CIA and NSA employee, and he was involved in building the system that essentially allowed the government, the U.S. government, to implement mass surveillance on the American people. Um, However, his morals and ethics caused or, like, led to him... Releasing these secret documents to journalists and stuff like that in order to tell the general public that, hey, the government is spying on you. um, Whether maybe through your laptop cam or through just your interactions with websites such as Facebook um, and just your internet history in general. And in this memoir, Permanent Record, he was talking about how he loved the internet of the 1990s because of the anonymity um in a way he described it as he talked about how it was really essential to character development like obviously people doing bad stuff or malicious stuff such as like saying mean things obviously that's not what happens on the dark web it's a lot worse than you know telling you anonymously (laughs) that your haircut is weird like that's not what maybe that's what they talk about in book clubs maybe i don't know (laughs) um dark web book clubs do not contact us i'm not interested (laughs) i mean i'm sure you're great
1: maybe a little bit interested but
0: i'm sure you're great but i don't i'm not in the mood to like accidentally get murdered thanks anyway yeah (laughs) anyway but he was talking about how this anonymity and this thing that you could assume any identity you wanted without any trace of you ever being there allowed you to kind of build your own character, right? You learn, you grow, it happens. You make mistakes. It's not like you're tied to a name. Which honestly got me thinking about how much I value anonymity on the internet. Even now because we still have some level on the surface web, but even more so on the deep web, the dark web. And it's just interesting to think about the different ways this anonymity kind of affects us, not only in character development, but also like the activities that we do and the things that we pursue online.
1: Well, again, that's why so many people value the dark web. You can do so much on there that you wouldn't be able to on the surface web. Like, you can even conduct discussions with people just about current events, but anonymously, which could be super valuable for a lot of people. But again, you can't do that on the surface web because everything is tied to your IP address.
0: What would you do with a lot of anonymity? I mean, I'm going to assume that you're not going to start a drug empire because you're you
1: no <laughs> don't think i would have the time for that
0: anyway i think you have more morality than you know this dude who started the silk road based on psychedelic mushrooms but i also don't think i'm as interested in drugs as he was
1: <laughs> not that i know of
0: um i have no comment on that
1: <laughs> well there's this website actually which is like a dark web version of wikileaks called pirate bay And that's where a lot of whistleblowers will, you know, release important information. That would be something that, you know, could actually be interesting to go on to. So like journalism? Yeah. There's a lot of, you know, journalism companies like the New York Times. And again, like even Facebook, (laughs) which is a little strange. Basically, every major newspaper have a dark website so that people can give them information without, you know, feeling worried about, being harmed because of that
0: right yeah that sounds interesting that is definitely something i would also look into if i was on the dark web if hypothetical
1: if hypothetical situation <laughs> again i don't think either of us are going to do it you definitely shouldn't
0: <laughs> yeah um don't get accidentally murdered because you were curious kids um yeah yeah exactly. it- it's not worth it don't be curtis green greatest screen is, is not someone people should aspire to be. No, I don't think so. <laughs> so, um, of course, like there are good parts and bad parts to the dark web. Um, but how is this being regulated or policed? Because of course, while you want to encourage the good stuff, you also want to limit the bad stuff. Well, that's where the problem is
1: because there's so much bad stuff you know, shady stuff on the dark web. Government have to do something to regulate that. But nobody can really, nobody's going to shut down the dark web because it is so invaluable to other people. You know, the international community in recent years has made significant progress addressing these challenges by, you know, improving information sharing, sharpening law enforcement's technical abilities to take down marketplaces like the Silk Road. And they've been regulating the transfer of cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, but they're still having trouble just because the dark web is so difficult to trace people on because that's the whole point. If it was easy, nobody would use it. Right. However, they are taking drastic measures to try to regulate it. In 2018, Interpol and and the European Union brought together law enforcement agencies from 19 different countries to identify high value targets and they shared the type of operational intelligence necessary for enforcement. The results are fairly promising. Just this year, efforts allowed members of the group to make arrests and shut down 50 different dark web sites, including the Wall Street Market and Valhalla, which which were two of the largest drug markets on the dark web. Along with this, the FBI has had significant measures, too. Um, Ever since they made that task force, they've shut down a lot of other sites, and they've been able to sort of de-anonymize Tor servers, which establish nodes in the network that allow the agency to see the identities and locations of some illegal Tor-based web pages. The first significant action was the FBI's takedown of the Silk Road 2.0 website, which was, you know, a similar marketplace created in 2014. So again, this is obviously good because they're able to shut down these sites. Right. But if they're able to de-anonymize some Tor servers, then what's the point?
0: I mean, like, the whole purpose is kind of like, how do we protect this privacy or anonymity? Or can this even be granted if you're doing illegal stuff?
1: What's good is that even though Tor is the most popular, there are other browsers like I2P or Freenet, which are completely anonymous. But again, we could be there soon. Governments and international institutions are also attempting to regulate some cryptocurrencies, again, like Bitcoin, that are fueling dark web marketplaces. In 2019, for example, the Financial Action Task Force issued guidance that urged companies which process cryptocurrency transfers to identify both the sender and receiver of fund transfers. This guidance followed the recommendation of the 2018 G20 Summit, where leaders, um, Ask other agencies to consider policy responses for crypto assets, particularly to know your customer and, you know, to understand and identify anti-money laundering and counter the financing of terrorism. Because, again, cryptocurrency is used on the dark web to buy, you know, illegal items and also terrorists use it, which, so if we're able to stop that, it would be very helpful. But, again... Without cryptocurrency, people don't have a way to anonymously purchase things.
0: Okay, I just think it's insane how this, I guess, cryptocurrency that had no attachment to anything can now be traced to people. Or like, efforts are being made to trace it to some people.
1: So obviously, a lot of governments are trying to solve problems associated with the dark web. They're creating dark web task forces. And they're, you know, trying to ally with one another to, you know, regulate the dark web. But a lot of groups that have had the most success are actually non-governmental groups. One of these, which is probably the most well-known, is Anonymous, which I'm sure you know about.
0: Yes, Anonymous. (laughs) I love Anonymous. Okay, Um, just, like, some background. These people took down about, like, 20% of the dark web. Um, I think, wasn't it... They sent a message to a lot of, I guess, child pornography sites um, that said, like, you've been hacked.
1: So, you know, TikTok is obsessed with Anonymous. The entire Gen Z generation is obsessed with Anonymous because of stuff like this. So what you were talking about, there was a hacker, which was affiliated with Anonymous, who took down 20% of the dark web. This guy did so by breaching the servers of popular dark web hosting service called Freedom Hosting 2, which powers about 15-20% of .onion sites, which are obviously websites on Tor. The hacker targeted this service specifically, as the website contained a lot of um, child pornography. The hacker, with like a group of other hackers also affiliated with Anonymous, he accessed the servers and stole... Thousands of gigabytes worth of data, and he said the
0: hack was a vigilant move, a vigilante move. This man's a legend. This group is a legend, and like these are superheroes in real life. And when asked about it, he said it was pretty easy. <laughs> Good job, this guy. Good job.
1: <laughs> he made it so that about ten thousand dot onion websites were completely wiped and only had one announcement that said. Hello, Freedom Hosting 2, you have been hacked.
0: Okay, I just, first of all, guys, the point of being on the dark web is so that you have like strong encryption, so that this stuff doesn't happen. You had one job and you failed, which is a good thing. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. Because, you know, obviously like all that malicious content or malware can be taken out. But also just props to this hacker group, because that takes a lot of diligence.
1: Anonymous is pretty well known for doing stuff like this. They've taken down child pornography on both the surface web and the deep web frequently through recent years. And, you know, a lot of the stuff that they do is fairly good.
0: Right. I've also heard that they publish a lot of leaks on government um, officials. Yeah, they do. Which is great. Anonymous, you're awesome.
1: (laughs) We really do love Anonymous. Overall, whenever either governmental groups or ngos are trying to regulate the dark web it really just comes down to a conflict between anonymity and safety obviously it's a government's job to protect citizens from you know illegal activity which is why they try to take down dark markets and you know try to identify people who are using dark the dark web illegally but then it just comes down to the question of is it worth risking people's anonymity who are using the dark web for good?
0: I mean, I know we talk a lot about this stuff recently in our global politics class with human rights. Um, I know recently I looked at the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was established immediately after World War II because, of course, there were a bunch of war atrocities going on and a bunch of human rights violations. Um, So this document basically just, I guess set a standard for what these human rights should be. And I don't think privacy or security were specifically mentioned in regards to like cyber activity. But I think it is definitely something to consider because at what expense does your privacy come with your security?
1: That's the question that governments all over the world have been struggling with. Like a lot of... um a lot of laws regarding security and privacy have been made for, you know, the material world. But then when it comes to the cyber world, there's not a lot of regulations in place, which is why it's so confusing trying to navigate that kind of landscape.
0: Right. And the other thing, I guess, would be at what cost is your privacy worth your security? Or the other way around, at what cost is your security worth your privacy how much are you going to trade either for each other i guess that's the question the world has to figure out thank you guys so much for tuning into this episode this was way more chaotic than usual
1: but it was also a lot
0: more fun yeah um i definitely learned a lot more even though you've talked to me about this repeatedly because diva is an official dark web (laughs) fangirl i swear (laughs)
1: I've talked about the dark web in almost all of my classes at this
0: point. I mean, come on. It's pretty legendary, okay? It really is. If you do want to continue this conversation, follow us on our Instagram at Positionality Media, or contact us on our email at positionalitymedia at gmail.com. We also have listener messages enabled, so feel free to send us a message over there. Um, Other than that, tune in next time for an episode on the dark side of the toy industry. Where we'll be talking about Toys R Us, because, you know, that kind of (laughs) died.
1: Thanks so much for listening. Bye.
0: See ya.